you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. You can find that on page 911 if you're using the Red Pew Bible. Uh, This morning, we're actually going to be wrapping up Acts 2. So we're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47. So Acts 2, starting at verse 42. Now, when I was a boy, uh, my granddad took me into the study at his house and reached up into one of his cabinets and produced a large Ziploc bag that was absolutely stuffed to the seam with these Boy Scout patches. Now, my granddad had been very active in Boy Scouts growing up, and he pretty much accomplished everything you could, including earning the rank of Eagle, which is the highest and hardest rank to achieve. And during his time in Scouts, he'd been to all sorts of camps and jamborees, and he'd met Scouts from other troops and other councils there. Now, if you don't know anything about Boy Scouts, uh, what you need to know is that there are councils which are divided into troops, and each individual Scout's part of one of those troops. So each one of those councils has a different, unique patch that's worn on the shoulder of an individual Scout who is part of the troop that's in that council. So it kind of identifies you when you go visit other places. Um, They're usually uh, organized by region, and so usually the patch reflects something about that area. So for instance, when I was in Kentucky, I uh, was a troop in Kentucky. We, we were on the Ohio River, and our patch had a steamboat on the side. So it kind of reflects some of your unique history there. Now, when you go to Jamborees, there are typically scouts there from all over the place. And it's pretty common for those scouts to trade, to swap extra council patches with each other. And that's what my granddad had done. And so he had patches uh, from councils all over America. So as he's showing me these things, I was absolutely fascinated. We dug into them, we were looking through all of them, and my granddad then looked at me and he said, if you get to the rank of eagle, I will give you these patches. These will be yours, but you have to earn them. And it was, it was at that moment when I was fully determined I was going to do just that. So as soon as I was old enough, I joined the Boy Scouts. I became part of the community that taught me some vital skills, not, not just for how to live in the woods, but really for life. It, it taught me character, leadership, how to work through adversity. And um, a few months before my granddad passed away, I earned the rank of Eagle Scout. Now, because he was an Eagle Scout himself, my leaders allowed him to be the one that gave me the rank. And I remember him taking his own kerchief, which he had received when he earned his eagle, and he put it on my neck, and with proud tears, he looked into my eyes, and he told me he was proud of me. And I felt like in that moment, we had something that was deeper than blood. It was deeper than the name we shared. And I got more than a bag of patches on that day. I got to be part of a fraternity, part of a brotherhood with him. And I'm so thankful for that moment because it was only a few weeks later that he passed. Communities like that are a powerful thing. Maybe you are part of or maybe you have been part of a club or an organization that's had an impact like that on you. Maybe it shaped a bit of who you are. If so, then you know how powerful community can be. How necessary it is. When people organize around an idea, or around a set of values, or even just a set of common interests, they can accomplish some great, meaningful things. Well, here at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see the formation of a community of people who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ 
as was preached to them by Peter and the apostles, who had received it, who had repented of their sins, trusted in him as their Savior, identified with him in baptism, confessed that he was the Christ, and chosen to follow him. What an amazing display of God's saving power. But as we press on in this chapter, Luke makes an important point to show us that the story of God's power didn't end with people simply believing that the gospel was true. In fact, the real evidence of the ongoing power of the gospel is shown in how it radically changed their lives. The evidence that these believers had indeed received the promise of the Holy Spirit that Peter had talked about was shown in how they came together in one, as one body, under one banner, as the bride of Christ. And as such, the world got, not, got to hear, not, not only got to hear about the gospel, they got to actually see this gospel played out in front of them in the very lives of those who had believed in Jesus. And Luke, before he presses on to other events that happened in the early life of the church, he records that transformation for us in these verses with the purpose of showing us that that same reality and that same calling is on all of us who have followed Christ. And this is what he's recorded for us. So let's read that together. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Now when we look at the formation of the early church in the days that followed Pentecost, we can vividly see a radical change that this message and the work of the Holy Spirit on them had in their lives. If there's one thing that defined these believers, it was love. Love for God and love for each other. Now, we know that their faith was genuine because of the way that God was at work in them to bear the fruit of faith, most specifically in the way that they loved. It is, as Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now clearly Luke shows that the work of the Holy Spirit goes beyond the moment of conversion. He didn't stop in the lives of these 3,000 people just with the conviction of their sin or when he gave them a heart for repentance and faith. 
He continued to work in them, breathing into them, animating them, and equipping them to follow Christ. Part of the Holy Spirit's work is applying the work of Christ to us, is shaping and fashioning us to be like Him. It is antithetical to the gospel of grace that God should save us, declare us righteous, adopt us into his household as sons and daughters, and then leave us caught fast in the shackles of our sinful flesh. The evidence that he is at work in us is that we take up our cross and we follow Christ, our King. So as the Spirit of God breathed new life into these believers, we see that he bound them together in a community of faith. He made them one church, functioning together as one body, with one spirit, in one faith, having received one baptism, living under the banner of one king. God intends, even commands, for believers to be committed members of this gospel community. This is where we experience and testify to the power of God at work in and through the gospel. And I believe that what Luke has recorded for us here about the early church is intended to be the model that we embrace for ourselves as a church as we live together in a committed covenant with one another. Luke has recorded a lot for us in a short amount of space. So what I want to do this morning is to really cover the defining features of the early church under two big headings. And then I want to answer a question that I think naturally comes up from this passage, which is, why do I need to be part of the local gathering of God's people? Well, the first defining feature of the first church, the church in Jerusalem, was this. They were committed to the gathering. We see that they were committed to the gathering. Now when the crowd had asked at Pentecost in response to Peter's sermon, brothers, what shall we do? Peter told them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us in verse 41 that those who received his word were in fact baptized and he says that there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, if we had been there and I asked you, hey, give me evidence, show me evidence that these people truly believe this message, what would be the evidence that you would present to me? What, what would you say? That's, that's kind of a tough question to answer. I mean, how do we know that anyone who says that they are a follower of Christ is genuinely saved? Well, besides the fact that Luke tells us that as much that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, I think that the real evidence of the faith of these early Christians was the fruit of their works. It was what they did, which in part, I think, is why Luke has recorded what he does about the early church in this passage. When a person is brought out of death and bondage to sin into the light and life of Christ, they are fundamentally changed. They are a new creature. They are no longer who they were. Their life is not their own. And as such, that change will produce fruit in their life. In Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, he tells them how he thanked God always when he prayed for them. Since, he did not, since though he did not know them personally, he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that they had for all the saints. Paul was able to rejoice in the salvation of people he had never met 
not because he had some secret access into the Lamb's Book of Life, but because he had heard their confession and the report of their works. Their lives matched their message. He could see the fruit of God's work in them. And so we find in Colossians chapter 3 that he goes on to encourage the church, saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is what life in Christ looks like. The evidence of the Spirit's work in us is that our faith reaches its terminus in our works. So if you are a disciple of Christ, then your life is going to look like, this, like, like his. If Jesus is your king, you're going to live in submission to his authority, and you're going to revel in his glory. If you're a citizen of his kingdom, then you're going to embrace his culture for your own. One of the great evidences of the Spirit's work in the early church was that there was this supernatural connection that each one of its members shared with each other which drew them together to live as the body of Christ the way a magnet draws pieces of iron together. This work was shown in how they dedicated themselves to meeting together. And that's an important thing to notice. In verse 42, Luke says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So these believers, though individually united to Christ by faith, were also being drawn together in one community. This community was centered on four things. So when they came together, four things were going on. And I want to get into each one of those because they're important for us as we think about what the church is meant to do when it comes together. What are we supposed to do on a Sunday morning? Well, we follow their example. First, Luke says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they were devoting themselves to God's word. Now we know from Acts chapter 6 that the apostles were serving the church specifically by preaching the word of God to them. They were preaching and teaching, equipping the saints with the truth. Jesus had told his disciples that after he left that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and equip them for this task. He said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the apostles were uniquely qualified, and they had a certain kind of authority to teach and to preach and to explain God's word and the gospel to the people, not just because they had spent so much time with Jesus in his ministry and been trained by him, but also because the Holy Spirit had, been, had called and equipped them to this task. 
The early church, we see, devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, who showed that they were, in fact, authorized to speak the way that they did and to teach the way they did, uh, because the Holy Spirit continued to do signs and wonders through them, which is what we see in verse 43. So through the preaching of the word of God and the display of God's power, Luke tells us that awe or fear a reverent sort of fear, came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through them. Now, we no longer have apostles with us, but we do have their teachings preserved for us in the Bible. What you hold in your hands is the living, breathing word of God. 2 Peter 3, verse 16, indicates that the apostles themselves were aware that, the, that these writings were not something that they were producing on their own authority, but that they were, in fact, the very words of God. And they commissioned pastors and elders of the churches throughout the empire that, uh, that were planted through their witness to continue to teach and to preach these things. Uh, Paul actually says to Timothy, devote yourselves to the, to yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the first mark of the first church was that they devoted themselves to God's word taught to them by the apostles. They submitted themselves to it, and through it they grew. Well, the same is true for the church today. That is why we spend so much time each Sunday pouring over God's word together. If we hope to live and to thrive as Christ's body, we must first and foremost be dedicated to God's word, since it's through that word that the Holy Spirit most generally works in our lives, affecting us and perfecting us with the glory of Christ. Now the second thing that Luke tells us about the early church is that he says they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. Now this really gets at the, the, the point that I said at the beginning um, here. Uh, the Holy Spirit, we see, was bringing believers together. Now, we could read this as Luke telling us that the believers were simply dedicating themselves to the fellowship of the apostles. Uh, that certainly wouldn't be wrong. In 1 John 1, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, Clearly, there's a fellowship there with the apostles. But nevertheless, I think we're short-sighted in our understanding of what Luke is trying to communicate if we don't also understand that this fellowship was really the coming together of the church as a whole. And that makes a really critical point to us. Back when COVID first started affecting our lives, uh, there was all this talk about essential services Services and jobs which people or authorities categorize as absolutely necessary. And frankly, it was really eye-opening because it showed us what people really consider to be most important. Let me tell you, if we learned anything in this pandemic, it is this, that the fellowship of the saints together in the local church is absolutely essential to our spiritual growth. We cannot thrive without it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who uses that to grow us. 
It was essential to the first, to the health of the first church, and it is essential to the health of ours. Luke tells us that besides devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, something which was only possible at this time if they actually came together as a church, since there was no Zoom, there was no YouTube, there wasn't even a New Testament, they were also devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the gathering. Now Titus knows that my team is the Clemson Tigers. And he knows that Ellie's team is the Louisville Cardinals. And if you ask him who his team is, he will tell you that it is the Blue Giraffes. It's not a team that actually exists. Now we are hoping, maybe praying a little bit, that when he plays soccer this spring, his team will be blue so he can live out his dream. And we're just going to name them the drafts. But we all know that a team that never actually gets together is not a team at all. And in a similar way, in order to be a church, the saints of God must be gathered in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. For these first Christians, it was not only natural for them to gather together, uh, it, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, and not just because they were attracted to the preaching of the word or the ordinances or the praying together. It was actually they were attracted to this. It was natural for them because they were attracted to each other because of the same hope that lived in each one of them. In Ephesians four, Paul writes, "I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called." So. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ's call on your life. How do we do that, Paul? Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see how Paul combines the call of God over our lives in Christ Jesus with the fellowship of the saints and the work of the Holy Spirit in us? You see how critical that is to following Christ? How does a body function if its pieces and its parts are not joined together? The New Testament word for church actually means the gathering. We are not being the church unless we are regularly gathering together in fellowship. And clearly this is the model that is given to us by Luke as he records the way the first church was functioning. Those first Christians truly saw their gathering together as an essential thing. Now the third thing, the third feature that Luke tells us about what the early church was doing is that they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. So just as they came together to hear God's word taught, Luke informs us that they were gathering together to partake of the Lord's table together. The phrase, the breaking of bread, which Luke uses here, is oftentimes used in the New Testament specifically to describe the Lord's Supper. Now, it can simply mean that they were eating together. But in the context of the church's meeting, most scholars understand that this is directly referring to the, celebrate, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's important, as we read what Luke records here, 
to see the role that the ordinances play in distinguishing a church from other Christian gatherings. Luke has already told us that these believers had been baptized. They were following Christ by faith. And part of that, part of testifying to, uh, to that reality was that they were, when they were gathering together, they were keeping the ordinance of the Lord's Supper together, proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes as he had commanded his disciples to do. I think that's part of what drew them to this fellowship of other believers. God's word was being put into action in the assembly of his people looking forward to the day of Jesus' return. Now the fourth thing that Luke tells us about what the early church was doing when they came together is that he says they were devoting themselves to the prayers. Now Luke's grammar here seems to indicate that these were likely formal prayers, perhaps uh, ones that they knew uh, from their Jewish backgrounds or perhaps ones that had been taught to them by the apostles. But the key point and what you need to see here is that when the church came together, it devoted itself to corporate prayer. When Jesus was on earth, he prayed in private and he prayed in public. He instructed his disciples to pray directly to God as their Father, not for show, but in faith that he hears us and delights in answering those prayers according to his purpose and his will. Prayer is a response of faith to the promises of God. And so we see that the early church, when they came together, devoted themselves to prayer, putting faith into action together as one body, which indicates to us that this is an essential part of what we're called to do as a church as well. God has not left us without a model of what we should do as we come together as a local church. The culture of the church is intended to reflect the culture of the kingdom of God. That's part of how we fulfill our role as witnesses of Christ. That's part of how we function together as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And so when we do this together, God delights in having a great effect, not just on us, but on everyone who sees us. Which leads us to consider our next point here. Luke tells us, that they formed a compelling community. The church formed a compelling community. Let me ask you, what's the difference between the church and a country club? What's the difference between the church and another club or, or organization that you might be part of? Well, many things. But most fundamentally, the difference is that the church is the bride of Christ. That it is the body of Christ. That it is a group of people who have been united to Christ through faith where the Holy Spirit is at work in the gathering of God's people and where people get to experience firsthand the power of the gospel at work. When we see the early church, we don't just see a bunch of religious fanatics who were just intent on following a bunch of rules. We see people who had been fundamentally changed by the power of the work of Christ. We see in part, what it looks like when Christ reigns. We see the light of his life shining into a dark world. As we read about the early church, it's like stepping into a different world. Now, this is true, whether we're talking about the formal gathering of the church, like what Luke describes for us in verse 42, or whether we're talking about the way these first believers were living their lives out throughout the week. What we find here, as we read Luke's account of all of this, 
is that the church functioned together as a compelling community which God worked through for the glory of the name of Christ. This was not just a religious exercise that they did once a week. This was a totally different way of living. And just as Luke gives us a model of what it looked like for the local church to come at what it does when it comes together, he also gives us a model here for how to live as the church of Christ as we function as a church in our own city. Now, first and foremost, as I've mentioned here, we see that the church was defined by a love for one another. They, they loved one another. Luke says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where there is no thief, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Tell me from what Luke has recorded about the early church, from the way that they used their resources, where was their heart? It wasn't in earthly possessions. It was in heavenly priorities. When one brother saw another brother in need and had the ability to meet that need, he gave with generosity out of a heart of love. You'll notice as we read Luke's account of how these believers were caring for each other, that they weren't uh, giving to meet these needs because they were being compelled by the apostles to do so. No one was forcing their hand. No one was saying, hey, you have too much, you need to give to so-and-so. This is not, this is not socialism, it's not communism. This is the church loving one another. This is what it looks like for people who are compelled by love to act on that. This is not the sort of giving that you see in some places, like in those who preach a prosperity gospel of giving to this or that ministry in the hopes that God will multiply your material gain. Now this is what it looks like to give with a cheerful heart of love out of a sense of the overwhelming inheritance of what we have received in and through Christ. Now as we look at this, I want you to, I want to encourage you to look beyond the material of what was being given to really see the heart of why people were giving in this way. John indicates that love like this for one another makes it evident whether or not we are truly children of God. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, we have copies of our church covenant over here. That's meant to be a living, breathing document for this church. In that covenant, we make promises to one another to love each other, to walk beside each other, to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, to rejoice in each other's triumphs. Let us commit to do that, not just in word, but also in deed. May our giving reflect the love of Christ that is within us. Now Luke also tells us that even as the church was defined by love for Christ and love for one another, that it was also defined by a heart of thankfulness. 
It stands to reason that these early disciples gave to meet each other's needs the way they did because their hearts were overflowing with, the th- with thankfulness over what they had received in Christ. In verse 46, Luke says that day by day they were attending the temple together, that they were breaking bread in their homes. They, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. To put it shortly, Luke paints a picture of the church uh, in, in that they were doing life together. They weren't just coming together once a week. They were actually doing life together. This was a committed community And it was also a compelling community. And it was those things because it was defined by the power of the gospel at work in it, producing fruits of thankfulness and worship. This wasn't something they just did one day out of the week, but day by day, Luke tells us, they were going to the temple together. They were eating in one another's homes. They were receiving their food, whether they were the ones who were serving or whether they were the ones who were receiving with glad, generous hearts. And as we read this, I don't know about you, but that is the kind of community that I want. And judging from what Luke has laid out for us, This is the kind of community that God has designed for the church to have. Last week, I was bemoaning privately that I wasn't going to get to preach this text on the same week that we were taking the Lord's Supper together because it's just a beautiful picture of the unity we have together as a church. But given that we're about to have this potluck together, I'm actually praising God that that's the case because we're going to get to put this fellowship into practice. What we're doing is a biblical thing. And from this passage, I want to encourage all of you, don't underestimate the impact you are able to have when you love your fellow brother and sister in Christ, whether it's simply sharing a meal together, asking them about their week, not just, hey, did you have a good week, but actually getting those those dirty details that nobody wants to share. Don't underestimate the impact you can have on someone's life. by just simply bringing over some food, spending time with them, investing with them in private Bible study, or just going to get donuts together because you love them, because they bear the seal of Christ. It would be very easy to just regulate our obligation towards one another to Sunday mornings. Come for a few hours, go live your life, do what you want. But that's not the pattern of the church laid out here, is it? These brothers and sisters open their homes to each other They invested time in each other. They invited other believers into the messiness of their lives because they believed it was more important to live out the love of Christ to one another than it was to look a certain way. I fully believed, I fully believe that they were living this way because of the way the Spirit was at work in them to put this into practice and to put into practice what they were being taught by the apostles. God's blueprint for the local church was never meant to be centered around a pastor, around a group of programs, around a building, around the type of music that we have, or our individual preferences. It has always been intended to focus on the gospel. That is what brings us together, and that is what sends us out. The difference between the church and any other, and any sort of club or organization isn't that we just have a sort of community with each other. You can get community in a lot of different ways. The difference is that our community is centered on the gospel. And it's in 
the life of the church where people get to see the power of the gospel put on display. That's what made the early church a compelling community. That's why people who were outside of the church, even as they witnessed this, they thought, this is, this is something genuine and real. And people day by day were coming to Christ. That's what made them a compelling community, and that's what will make Grace Baptist Church a compelling community as well. We are centered on the message of the gospel. In verse 47, Luke tells us that as people saw the church living this way, that they had favor with all the people, and that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The living out of the gospel produced a compelling community that attracted people to Christ. They saw that this wasn't just another theory, that it wasn't just another religion. They saw that it was true because they saw the way that this was affecting these people. And God used that testimony, not only of words, but also of the church's actions to save people day by day. The power of the gospel didn't just bring these believers together. It also, through the testimony of the church, brought others to Christ. So, those are two big headings of what we see going on in the early local church. And it leads to this last question, this last point, which is a question. Why do I need to be part of the local gathering of God's, of Christ's body? Why do I need to be part of the local church? Now, despite what we see in the New Testament about the importance of the local church, I think that a lot of Christians today do not consider that, the, that this gathering or that this life together is something that's actually essential. If we're part of the church, of the big C church, the universal church, then why do we need to be part of the little C church, the local church? Well, to answer that thoroughly would take more time than what we have left. But I want to give you seven reasons why you need to be part of a local church, not just as an attender, but as a committed member. First, it is the pattern that we're given in the New Testament. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, is just one example. Nowhere in the New Testament do we have individual Christians functioning on their own apart from the local church. In their writings, the apostles are constantly commanding Christians in how to, how to care for one another in the context of the local church. It, we cannot claim to be part of the body of Christ if we refuse to be gathered together with it. As 1 John 2 Verse 19 indicates that speaking of those who had abandoned the flock, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It is the pattern of the New Testament for Christians to be united to a local church. Second reason you need to be part of a local church is that a desire to be with God's people is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Who produces this sort of love for the brethren that we see here in the early church? Is it not the Spirit of God? The promise that Peter said was for these believers, their children, and everyone whom the Lord calls to himself? The desire to devote, uh, to be devoted, to, uh, to devote oneself to God's word, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, and the sort of glad fellowship that the early church had, that comes from God. We come here to be refreshed because the Holy Spirit uses the gathering of the church to do that, binding us together as one body in one faith, in one hope, under the banner of one king. A third reason 
is that this, in the local church, this is where we spur one another on in love and good deeds. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. We are not saved by our works, but the scriptures clearly teach that we are saved for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you know that part of God's purpose for the local church is that by walking together, we are called to spur one another on to these things? Consider Hebrews 10, verses 23 and 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A fourth reason. The church is where we care for and where we watch over one another. The apostles actually weren't the ones who came up with the idea of the church. Jesus is the one who gave directions concerning it in Matthew chapter 18. In the context, Jesus is talking specifically about church discipline, but if you look at the commands that he gives, you'll see that his instructions are first and foremost that we are called to be watching over one another in love. God has given us each other to care for one another's souls, and that's impossible if we're not willing to commit to one another. A fifth reason. The church is where we confirm one another in this hope. Now, if you're running solo, it can be very easy to have your confidence shaken. It's hard to swim upstream. If, you've never, if you're never around other believers, then it's going to be hard not to give in to the world, to resist sin, or to endure trials. When we come together as a church, we're doing something. We're saying together, we believe the gospel. And we encourage one another to hold fast to the hope of our faith in Christ. Sixth reason. As a visible display of the kingdom of heaven, we invite the world to come and to join the kingdom of Christ. Now you have heard me time and time again talk about the local church as an embassy of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, It's an image which Jonathan Lehman uses in his book with Colin Hansen, which the men are reading on Thursdays. Uh, And and I love what he says. He says it really well here, so I'm going to read you a little excerpt. He says this. An embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. It represents and speaks for that foreign nation. Were you to enter one of these embassies, you would hear the language of the nation it represents. Among its staff, you would experience its culture. If you attended an embassy dinner, you'd taste its delicacies. And if you sneaked into one of its backed office, we assume you'd learn about its diplomatic business. What's a gathered church? It's an embassy of heaven. Step into our, inside our church, or your, your church or ours, and what will you find? A whole different nation. Sojourners, exiles, citizens of Christ's kingdom. Inside, inside such churches, you'll hear the king's words declared. You'll hear heaven's language of faith, hope, and love. You'll get a taste of the end-time banquet through the Lord's Supper. And you'll be charged with its diplomatic business as you're called to bring the gospel to your nation and every other nation. Not only that, you should experience the beginning of heaven's culture. Luke says that when people saw the gospel lived out before them and heard the testimony of these believers that God added to their number day by day, 
Friends, we're here to be the church. Not just to keep up a habit or to feel good or or to have some sort of feel-good religion. We're here because Jesus has changed us. He's made it so that heaven is our home. And until we are called to him, we've got a job to do. This should be a place where people who are outsiders, whether they believe the gospel or not, should come and, and experience and then come away saying, yep, there's something powerful going on in those people. Something supernatural that I can't explain, but I want it. That's our mission. A seventh reason why you need to be part of a local church. We wonder in awe and worship at what God is doing in the lives of his people we are joined together with them as the local church. Luke says that awe came upon every soul as they devoted themselves to coming together. I understand that this was due uh, in part uh, to the signs and the wonders which the apostles were doing, but more than that, I'd understand that this was in response to the Spirit's own work in their hearts as they were coming together as a local church. When we draw apart from each other, it becomes increasingly difficult to rejoice and worship God for what He's accomplishing in each other's lives. One of my favorite things about getting to meet with you throughout the week is getting to hear about what God's doing in your life. I come away refreshed from those meetings, and I hope you do too. God means for us to be part of a compelling community which is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we gather together, our hearts burn all the brighter with the glory of Christ. So the picture of the local church in Acts 2, verses 42-47, is wonderful and beautiful. The local church doesn't always look this way. But that doesn't change what I believe is God's purpose for the local church or the reason why we need to be committed to it. Hopefully today you've seen not only the importance of what we do when we gather, but also why we need this, why we need to be together. And I hope that you've also seen that this community is intended to spill out beyond these walls into the world so that Christ might be glorified. Let's pray. Father, this morning we've, we've gotten to rejoice in the work that you did in the early church. And Father, it's part of what makes that joy full is getting to, getting to look at things that you've accomplished here and now through your local church, getting to be part of that. Father, this morning we want to pray that we would follow um, the path, that you, the blueprint you have laid out for your local church, that we would be faithful in our witness, faithful to the gospel, that we'd be led by your spirit, that we would love one another, that we would receive all things that we receive with thankfulness and with generosity, that we would care for one another in each other's needs, that you would use us to encourage each other to walk in faithfulness to Christ, and that as the world sees us, that it would, it would, that the light of Christ would fall on it, and that you would continue to add to your church day by day those who are being saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.